If you're a politics junkie, you need to be listening to the Election Ride Home podcast. Every day at 5 p.m., former This American Life contributor Chris Higgins reports from the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction and what do the polls say? Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the audiobook Last Exit by Jason R. Davis, narrated by Darren Marlar. It's the dark and lonely road. You drive, you're tired and falling asleep behind the wheel. The windows are down, the cool air blowing through your hair as you crank up the stereo. ACDC blares on the radio and you're screaming out the chorus. Then a set of headlights emerges from the darkness and your night has become a nightmare. Welcome to Last Exit, an anthology of 17 horrific tales where life on the road can sometimes take a dark and unexpected turn. Last Exit by Jason R. Davis. Here a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Mysterious Encounters with Flying Saucers and Aliens Stunned witnesses describing strange crafts moving at high speed through the skies. Others mentioning meetings with shadowy figures or bizarre recordings of noises in space. Recently declassified documents detail a catalog of all of these events and more. If they are to be believed, the accounts are more incredible than the supposed alien crash at Roswell. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. Be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. And if you already consider yourself an official weirdo, please help me get the word out by sharing a link to this episode in your social media, and thanks for doing so. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… After the wealthy and prominent Blanche Monnier fell in love with a commoner, her mother did the unthinkable in an attempt to stop it locking her in her room for years on end. A similar story to that of Blanche is the imprisonment of Elizabeth Fritzel. She spent 24 years in captivity, confined to a makeshift cellar, and repeatedly tortured by her own father. Despite having one husband and two boyfriends over the years, Dolly Ostrich continued to keep her secret lover hidden in the attic. Top-secret CIA files have emerged from the 1950s, exposing the explosive truth about alien UFOs visiting Earth. And we begin with the Stargate Project. What was it really? Did it exist? And did the government shut it down? Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness.
Stargate is a Defense Intelligence Agency or DIA program which involved the use of phenomena that many in the mainstream world still consider non-existent. Project Stargate, in particular, lasted for 25 years before it was unexpectedly shut down. Much of the material and research from the program still remains classified. Stargate incorporated consciousness, paranormal phenomena, ESP, remote viewing, and more for intelligence collection and research. How can the Department of Defense have programs that study these phenomena for over 35 years when our mainstream world still doesn't consider it real enough to study? I find the name Stargate intriguing, not necessarily because I'm a fan of the TV show, but I wonder what inspiration lay behind the name, chosen by those who initiated the program. It's unfortunate that these concepts are not studied by major universities and our mainstream world. The significance of these realities can be far-reaching. Having major educational institutions governing what type of knowledge is useful for learning isn't fair. It's simply a stepping stone for people to integrate themselves into a system that no longer resonates with the majority on the planet. As a result, extended human capacities which are completely natural and lay dormant within all of us, remain unused, undiscovered, and not provided the opportunity to grow. Stargate was declassified in September of 1995, and the final report was released to the public which concluded that a statistically significant effect had been demonstrated in the laboratory, but that there is compelling evidence that the CIA set the outcome with regard to intelligence usage before the evaluation had begun. This was accomplished by limiting the research and operating data sets to exude positive findings, by purposefully not interviewing historically significant participants, by ignoring previous DoD extensive program reviews, and by using the questionable National Research Council's investigation of parapsychology as the starting point for their review. Although a statistically significant effect had been demonstrated in the lab, it was shut down because it remained unclear whether the existence of paranormal phenomenon, remote viewing, and more had been demonstrated, because the origins and nature of the phenomenon remained unclear, assuming it exists, nor does it address an important methodological issue of interjudge reliability. It was concluded that even if paranormal phenomenon occurs under the conditions present in the setting of a laboratory, which it did, conditions would still differ outside the lab and have limited applicability and utility for intelligence-gathering operations in the real world. The review was done by a group of experts, one of them being Dr. Jessica Utz, a professor in the Division of Statistics at the University of California, Davis. She said, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well-established. The statistical results of the studies examined are far beyond what is expected by chance. Arguments that these results could be due to methodological flaws in the experiments are soundly refuted. Effects of similar magnitude of those found in government experiments have been replicated at a number of laboratories across the world. Dr. Rutz Stargate, after a 25-year run, was shut down due to its lack of applicability within the world of intelligence gathering. Most people these days know that the explanations for a previous extremely classified subject are not always indicative of the truth. 
could there have been another reason for the shutdown? Did the U.S. government really shut it down? Is there evidence to suggest that it was shut down for other reasons? There is some evidence that suggests it was not shut down at all. First of all, these programs are called special access programs. They are extremely classified and extremely secretive. The full extent and findings within these programs are not yet and never have been known to the mainstream world, but truth can't remain concealed forever. They are so secretive that they do not even have to report to Congress. They are exempt. That means there is absolutely no oversight into these programs. Nobody has an idea about what's going on and who is involved. You can read more about the recent leak by Edward Snowden on the black budget. It could be taking in trillions and trillions of dollars each year. Another significant reason some might call it definitive proof that the program is still running is the whistleblowing of Ingo Swan. Ingo was the primary participant in multiple studies and conducted by the CIA, NSA, the DoD, alongside researchers at Stanford University on the subject of remote viewing. Remote viewing is the ability of an individual to describe a remote geographical location of up to several hundred thousand kilometers away from their physical location. Quote, the Freedom of Information Act resulted in the government's recent admission of its two-decade-plus involvement in funding highly classified special access programs in remote viewing and related psi phenomena, first at Stanford Research Institute and then at Science Applications International Corporation, both supplemented by various in-house government programs." H. E. Puthoff During the experiments, Ingo was able to successfully remote view the rings around Jupiter before the NASA Pioneer 10 made a flyby of the planet. All of this is documented in the literature. What's not documented is the fact that Ingo went on to write multiple books sharing an experience within the program. In his experience, he described intelligence officers coming to get him, blindfolding him, transporting him to locations that were underground where he would speak to another man in a suit. We know that Ingo successfully remote-viewed Jupiter as documented. He claims he also remote-viewed the backside of the moon and that whoever was taking him to these locations and interrogating him were astounded to know that he was able to see what he saw on the backside of the moon. That means that they, the men in suits, were confirming what he, Ingo, was looking at and already knew of what he was looking at. Ingo expressed that the reason the program was declassified was so they, the DIA, could say it was shut down and didn't find anything worthy of use within the intelligence community. It was really shut down and declassified so it could remain secret, and so they could say, it's been declassified, nothing more to see here. Ingo expressed that it was highly classified and that they publicly shut it down because remote viewing and psychic phenomenon is one of the greatest threats to government secrecy. This seems to me to be a much better explanation of the apparent shutdown of the program. According to our best estimates, said Richard Nolan, more than half of all U.S. government records are classified. For an archivist seeking to preserve and understand our history, that means most of our history is kept secret from us. Think about that for a moment. Human beings are capable of much more than they are currently aware of. Many of these capacities still remain known but hidden. 
Regardless, truth cannot remain concealed forever. It will eventually make its way out over time. What is occurring here are natural phenomena. It's nothing to fear. In our not-too-distant history, exploring concepts such as these was viewed as a heretic act. Fear was used as a form of control, and people were taught to be wary of these concepts and stay away from them as if they were the work of something not so pleasant. The dominant ruler on the planet in these times was the Catholic Church, and it was common for them to ban and forbid knowledge that did not fit the accepted framework, worldview, or paradigm. Things are changing and extended human capacities like ESP are beginning to be seen in a new light. The implications of this are far-fetching. From birth, we emerge into a world with so much to discover. As children, discovery is the joy of life. That sense of discovery is taken from us at a very early age. We are placed into the educational system very fast and told that this is how the world is and what we need to do to be successful in it. This immediately shifts our attention away from what is really important, into a framework of a robotic-like existence, trapping ourselves into a program and way of life that does not resonate with our souls and is not in balance with our natural selves. In the meantime, we let our planet suffer and let others live in conditions that nobody deserves to live in. We can live in a world that is built upon cooperation and service to others, where all needs are met and the enthusiasm of discovery we had when we were children is encouraged and extended. If we did this, the human race would be living in a world of more wonder and potential, far beyond the limitations we put on ourselves today. The only barrier that prevents us from getting there is the place at which the human race chooses to operate from. We don't have the best track record in using our scientific discoveries to benefit the whole. The only way we can continue forward with our exploration beyond this point is if our intention for creation has the entire planet of every living being on it first in their heart. Technological developments must work with nature, not against it. The same concept applies to extended human capacities, and specifically, the place to which we choose to apply them. Using extended human capacities and new technological discoveries with the intention of doing nothing but good for the entire collective would be a really cool planet to live on. One May day in 1901, the Attorney General of Paris received a strange letter declaring that a prominent family in the city was keeping a dirty secret. The note was handwritten and unsigned, but the Attorney General was so disturbed by its contents he decided to investigate it immediately. When the police arrived at the Monnier estate, they must have had some misgivings. The wealthy family had a spotless reputation. Madame Monnier was known in Parisian high society for her charitable works. She had even received a community award in recognition of her generous contributions. Her son, Marcel, had excelled at school and now worked as a respectable lawyer. The Moniers had also had a beautiful young daughter, Blanche, but no one had seen her in close to 25 years. Described by acquaintances as very gentle and good-natured, the young socialite had simply vanished in the prime of her youth, just as high-society suitors had begun to come calling. No one gave much thought to this strange episode any longer 
and the family went about their lives as though it had never happened. The police made a customary search of the estate and did not come across anything out of the ordinary, until they noticed a putrid odor coming from one of the upstairs rooms. Upon further investigation, it was revealed that the door had been padlocked shut. Realizing that something was amiss, the police smashed the lock and broke into the room, unprepared for the horrors that lay within. The room was pitch black. Its only window had been shuttered closed and hidden behind thick curtains. The stench in the dark chamber was so overwhelming that one of the officers immediately ordered the window to be broken open. As the sunlight streamed in, the policeman saw that the horrendous odor was due to the rotting scraps of food that littered the floor surrounding a decrepit bed to which an emaciated woman was chained. When the police officer had opened the window, it was the first time Blanche Monnier had seen the sun in over two decades. She had been kept completely naked and chained to her bed since the time of her mysterious disappearance 25 years earlier. Unable to even get up to relieve herself, the now middle-aged woman was covered in her own filth and surrounded by the vermin that had been lured in by rotting scraps. The horrified policemen were so overwhelmed by the smell of filth and decay, they were unable to stay in the room for more than just a few minutes. Blanche had been there for 25 years. She was immediately taken to a hospital while her mother and brother were placed under arrest. Hospital staff reported that although Blanche was horrendously malnourished – she only weighed 55 pounds when rescued – she was quite lucid and remarked how lovely it is to breathe fresh air again. Slowly, her whole sad story began to emerge. It turned out that Blanche had found a suitor all those years ago. Unfortunately, he was not the young, rich aristocrat that her family had hoped she would wed, but rather an older, poor lawyer. Although her mother insisted she choose a more suitable husband, Blanche refused. In retaliation, Madame Monnier locked her daughter in a padlocked room until she ceded to her will. The years came and went, but Blanche Monnier refused to give in. Even after her beau died, she was kept locked in her cell with only rats and lice for company. Over the course of 25 years, neither her brother nor any of the family servants lifted a finger to help her. They would later claim they were too terrified of the mistress of the house to risk it. It was never revealed who wrote the note that triggered Blanche's rescue. One rumor suggests a servant let the family secret slip to her boyfriend, who was so horrified he went straight to the attorney general. Public outrage was so great that an angry mob formed outside the Monnier house, leading Madame Monnier to suffer a heart attack. She would die 15 days after her daughter's liberation. The story bears some similarities to the much more recent case of Elizabeth Fritzel, who also spent 25 years imprisoned in her own home, which we will touch on in just a moment. Blanche Monnier suffered from lasting psychological damage after her decades-long imprisonment. She lived out the rest of her days in a French sanitarium, dying in 1913. Keep listening, there's more weird darkness to come. This episode is brought to you by My Pillow. 
They asked me to try out a MyPillow to see what I thought about it and to let them know what I think. Well, I loved MyPillow. I kept it for myself, and now I'm encouraging you to do the same. It stays cool all night long. You don't have to wake up at 3 a.m. to flip to the cool side of a MyPillow. It keeps its shape. You're not reshaping your pillow in the middle of the night. MyPillow comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee, so if you try it and you don't like it, you can return it. And it comes with a 10-year warranty if you do keep it. Do you have a pillow that has a 10-year warranty? Probably not. And you can also toss a MyPillow into the washer and dryer, and it's like new again. Try doing that with your current pillow. See what happens. This pillow will last you forever. Right now, as a special welcome to just you, my Weirdo family members, they're offering two premium MyPillows for just one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and enter the promo code WEIRD. That's MyPillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. If you'd rather order by phone, you can call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or online at MyPillow.com. And be sure to use that promo code WEIRD. You'll get two premium MyPillows for one low price. MyPillow.com. Use the promo code WEIRD. If you're not familiar with the aforementioned case of Elizabeth Fritzel, prepare for a heart-wrenching and gut-sickening story. On August 28, 1984, 18-year-old Elizabeth Fritzel went missing. Her mother, Rose Marie, hastily filed a missing persons report, frantic over the whereabouts of her daughter. For weeks, there was no word from Elizabeth, and her parents were left to assume the worst. Then, out of nowhere, a letter arrived from Elizabeth, claiming she had grown tired of her family life and run away. Her father, Yosef, told a policeman who came to the house that he had no idea where his daughter would go, but that she likely joined a religious cult, something she had talked previously about doing. But the truth was that Yosef Fritzl knew exactly where his daughter was. She was about 20 feet below where the police officer was currently standing. On August 28, 1984, Yosef called his daughter into the basement of the family's home. He was refitting a door to the newly renovated cellar and needed help carrying it. As Elizabeth held the door, Yosef fixed it into place. As soon as it was on the hinges, he swung it open, forcing Elizabeth inside and knocking her unconscious with an ether-soaked towel. For the next 24 years, the inside of the dirt-walled cellar would be the only thing Elizabeth Fritzel would ever see. Her father would lie to her mother and the police, feeding them stories about how she had run away and joined a cult. Eventually, the police investigation into her whereabouts would run cold, and before long, the world would completely forget about the missing Fritzel girl. But Josef Fritzel wouldn't forget, and over the next 24 years, he would make that very clear to his daughter. As far as the rest of the Fritzel family was concerned, Yosef would head down to the basement every morning at 9 a.m. to draw plans for the machines that he sold. Occasionally, he would spend the night, but his wife wouldn't worry. Her husband was a hard-working man and was thoroughly dedicated to his career. As far as Elizabeth Fritzel was concerned, Yosef was a monster. At the minimum, he would visit her in the basement three times a week. Usually, it was every day. But the first two years, 
he left her alone, keeping her captive. Then he began to rape her, continuing the nightly visits he had begun when she was just 11 years old. Two years into her captivity, Elizabeth became pregnant, though she miscarried 10 weeks into the pregnancy. Two years later, however, she fell pregnant again, this time carrying to term. In August of 1988, a baby girl named Kirsten was born. Two years later, another baby was born, a boy named Stefan. Kirsten and Stefan remained in the cellar with their mother for the duration of her imprisonment, being brought weekly rations of food and water by Yosef. Elizabeth attempted to teach them with the rudimentary education she herself had and give them the most normal life she could under the horrific circumstances. Over the next 24 years, Elizabeth would give birth to five more children. One more was allowed to remain in the basement with her, one died shortly after birth, and the other three were taken upstairs to live with Rosemarie and Yosef. Yosef didn't just bring the children up to live with him, however. In order to conceal what he was doing from Rosemarie, he staged elaborate discoveries of the children, often involving placing them on bushes near the home or on the doorstep. Each time, the child would be swaddled neatly and accompanied with a note, allegedly written by Elizabeth, claiming that she could not take care of the baby and was leaving it with her parents for safekeeping. Shockingly, social services never questioned the appearance of the children and allowed the Fritzels to keep them as their own children. Officials were, after all, under the impression that Rosemarie and Yosef were the baby's grandparents. It's not known how long Yosef Fritzel intended to keep his daughter captive in the basement. He had gotten away with it for 24 years, and for all the police knew, he was going to continue for another 24. However, in 2008, one of the children in the cellar fell ill. Elizabeth begged her father to allow her 19-year-old daughter Kirsten to get medical attention. She had fallen rapidly and critically ill, and Elizabeth was beside herself. Grudgingly, Yosef agreed to take her to a hospital. He removed Kirsten from the cellar and called an ambulance, claiming that he had a note from Kirsten's mother explaining her condition. For a week, police questioned Kirsten and asked the public for any information on her family. Naturally, no one came forward as there was no family to speak of. The police eventually grew suspicious of Yosef and reopened the investigation into his daughter Elizabeth's disappearance. They began to read the letters that Elizabeth had supposedly been leaving for the Fritzels and began to see inconsistencies in them. Whether Yosef finally felt the pressure or had a change of heart regarding his daughter's captivity, the world may never know. But on April 26, 2008, he released Elizabeth from the cellar for the first time in 24 years. She immediately went to the hospital to see her daughter where the hospital staff alerted police to her suspicious arrival. That night, she was taken into custody to be questioned about her daughter's illness and her father's story. After making the police promise she never had to see her father again, Elizabeth Fritzel told the tale of her 24-year imprisonment. She explained that her father kept her in a basement and that she bore seven children. She explained that Yosef was the father of all seven of them and that he would come down during the night, make her watch pornographic films, and then rape her. She explained that he had been abusing her ever since she was 11 years old. The police arrested Josef Fritzl that night. 
After the arrest, the children in the cellar were also released and Rosemary Fritzel fled the home. She had allegedly known nothing about the events taking place right under her feet, and Yosef backed up her story. The tenants who had lived in the apartment on the first floor of the Fritzel home also never knew what was happening right beneath them, as Yosef had explained away all sounds by blaming faulty piping and a noisy heater. Today, Elizabeth Fritzel lives under a new identity in a secret Austrian village known only as Village X. The home is under constant CCTV surveillance and police patrol every corner. The family doesn't allow interviews anywhere within their walls and decline to give any themselves. Though she is now in her mid-40s, the last photo taken of her was when she was just 16 years of age. The efforts to conceal her new identity were made to keep her past hidden from the media and let her live a new life. Many believe, though, that they've done a better job of ensuring her immortality as the girl held captive for 24 years. It's not always the female who is kidnapped and locked away against their will. It can happen to the male species as well, as we are about to find out. The 1920s murder and love triangle that involved Dolly Ostrich is strange and sordid even by today's standards. While Berga Dolly Ostrich was a housewife in her early 30s, married to the owner of a Milwaukee apron factory. Fred Ostrich was successful and worked long hours but Dolly had needs, and Fred was either too busy or too drunk to meet them. One warm autumn day in 1913, Dolly found that her sewing machine wasn't working. She called Fred to vent her frustration, and he promised to send over a repairman. The young man that showed up to fix it was 17-year-old Otto Sanuber. Dolly must have figured that Fred would send Otto over because she knew the teenager worked for Fred at the factory. When Otto arrived, he was met by the alluring Dolly, wearing only a robe and stockings. Thus began a bizarre affair that would last a decade. At first, Dolly and Otto conducted their relationship in the usual secretive manner, meeting in hotels to continue their sexual relationship. After a while, meeting outside the home became burdensome, and the two began having sex in the ostrich's bed. Soon, though, nosy neighbors began to ask about the man who had been hanging around. Dolly told them he was her vagabond half-brother. After realizing they were drawing attention to themselves, Dolly decided that Otto should take up residence in the attic of the ostrich home. That way, he'd never be spotted coming or going. Otto quit his job at the factory and, having virtually no family, began to spend all his time, not spent with Dolly, in his hideaway within the house but this new arrangement meant that Otto could never leave the attic or prying eyes would notice. He remained sequestered there and worked on writing pulp fiction stories that he had hoped to have published. The Los Angeles Times reported, at night he read mysteries by candlelight and wrote stories of adventure and lust. By day he made love to Dolly Ostrich, helped her keep house, and made bathtub gin. For five years, Dolly and Otto carried on this odd relationship, with Otto living in the cramped attic. So when Fred informed Dolly in 1918 that 
they should sell the house and move to Los Angeles, things could have gotten complicated. Instead, Dolly found a house overlooking Sunset Boulevard with an attic and sent Otto there early so he'd be waiting for her when she arrived. And life continued on, in the exact same way it had been for more than four years, until August 22, 1922, when Otto overheard Dolly and Fred fighting from his attic abode. He burst into the room where the ostrichs were quarreling. He was brandishing two pistols. Fred recognized Otto from the factory and became extremely angry. The two men struggled and the guns went off. Fred was shot and Otto and Dolly panicked. Otto locked Dolly in a closet from the outside, taking the key and the guns with him to the attic. He knew neighbors would report the gunshots, and this way, Dolly would have an alibi. She couldn't have shot her husband while locked away. When the police arrived, Dolly indeed told them of a burglary where the robber shot Fred, took some expensive belongings, and then locked her in a closet before fleeing. The police were somewhat wary of the story but couldn't prove that it was not true, so they released her. Now that Dolly Ostrich was a widow, she moved into a new house and continued on with her life. One would assume that she and Otto could eventually bring their relationship into the open at this point, allowing Otto to have a normal life. But instead, when Dolly moved, her voluntary live-in sex slave took up residence in her attic again. Otto Sandhuber had managed to get a few pulp stories published, and with this money, plus a few nickels and dimes here and there from Dolly, he purchased a typewriter to keep writing, all while Dolly managed to get herself a new lover, lawyer Herman S. Shapiro. But like Dolly's first husband, Shapiro spent long hours away because of his profession. Enter Roy Klum, another lover to keep Dolly occupied, though her use of Klum might have been to help her get rid of the guns used to shoot Fred. Dolly persuaded him to ditch a gun for her, saying it resembled the burglar's gun and she didn't want to get into trouble. Klum tossed it into the Labria tar pits. She then sweet-talked a neighbor into burying the other gun in his yard. So when Dolly eventually broke up with Klum a while later, he went to the police with the story. The gun was pulled up from the tar pits and Dolly was taken into custody. Her neighbor dug up the other gun and took it to the cops, but neither weapon could be tied to Dolly because the guns had corroded. With Dolly awaiting trial in jail, she pleaded with Shapiro to buy groceries for Sanhuber and to tap on the ceiling of the bedroom closet to let him know he should come out. She also tried to tell Shapiro that the attic-bound Sanhuber was her vagabond brother, but starved for conversation with another male, Sanhuber spilled the truth to Shapiro about the nature of his and Dolly's relationship. Shapiro essentially told Sanhuber to get lost and got Dolly released on bail. Apparently, the fact that she had kept a man in the attic was not a deal-breaker, as the lawyer promptly moved in with her. All charges against Dolly Ostrich were dropped. That is, until seven years later, when things became irreparable between Dolly and Shapiro. He moved out and told the police what he had gathered of the crime against Fred Ostrich. Warrants were again issued for Dolly, and this time Sanhuber as well. A jury found Sanhuber guilty of manslaughter even after his defense stated that Dolly had enslaved him. The trial became known as the Batman case, since Sanhuber had been kept in a secluded, cave-like attic. Nevertheless, the statute of limitations on the manslaughter had run out. Sanhuber was a free man. 
Dolly Ostrich went to trial on a conspiracy charge, but also walked free after a hung jury. The indictment was eventually dropped in 1936. She died in 1961 at the age of 80, hopefully having learned a thing or two about relationships. Recently declassified documents detail a catalog of mysterious encounters with flying saucers and aliens. In reports going back decades, stunned witnesses describe strange crafts moving at high speed through the skies. Others mention meetings with shadowy figures or bizarre recordings of noises in space. If they are to be believed, the accounts are more incredible than the supposed alien crash at Roswell. A file from 1952 gives the sworn testimony of Oskar Link, the former mayor of Gleimershausen in Germany. He describes how he spotted two men in shiny metallic clothing, one of them with a glowing lamp on his body. Next to them was a large object, like a huge frying pan, which, when Oskar's daughter called out to him, they climbed into. The object rose to a horizontal position, he said, turned toward a neighboring town, and then disappeared over the heights and forests. He added, I would have thought that both my daughter and I were dreaming if it were not for the following element involved. When the object had disappeared, I went to the place where it had been. I found a circular opening in the ground, and it was quite evident that it was freshly dug. The file notes how many others living in the same area later related to seeing a comet-like object at the time. Another file from that same year describes two fiery disks seen lurking over a uranium mine in what was the Belgian Congo. Both glided in elegant curves, said an eyewitness, before coming to a stop mid-air and taking off in a zigzag fashion. Commander Pierre, who flew after them from an airfield in Elizabethville, today called Lubumbashi, sketched them, and the airman who is described as a dependable officer predicted their speed to be approximately 900 miles per hour. One more account from May of that same year describes a strange object soaring over Barcelona, emitting flashes of light. The journalist who saw it, Valentin Garcia, said, the newspaper office was soon flooded with telephone calls from people who had seen the object. Further sightings from different witnesses the following month describe similar encounters over Algiers in Tunisia and Casablanca in Morocco. Daily Star Online contacted leading UFO skeptic Robert Schaefer to try and secure a scientific explanation for the declassified files. He said, if you go through old newspapers and UFO books, you'll find numerous sensational sightings of landed saucers, little men, etc., and none of them have ever resulted in anything beyond the original account. No evidence, no follow-up in more than 60 years, he added, no clear photos have turned up, and no artifacts. Mr. Schaefer, author of the book Bad UFOs, added, We understand much more clearly than we did 60 years ago with what is wrong with uncritically accepting human recollections as being accurate. Photos of some of these unclassified documents can be found by following the link in this story in the show notes. So what do you think? Well, perhaps we'll never know. Perhaps the truth is out there.
Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. If you like the show, please share a link to this episode on all your social media, tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review. I might read your review here in the podcast. Sandman Lou said, Amazing podcast. I've listened to many paranormal podcasts, but this podcast tops them all. Hands down the best paranormal podcast out there. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. Well, thanks for the endorsement, Sandman. I appreciate that. If you would like to support the show, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness, early access to the Weird But True YouTube series, and patron-only content, including chapters of horror and paranormal books I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. I'm currently narrating the audiobook Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, and you can hear all the chapters that I've already narrated, starting with Chapter 1 all the way through Chapter 21, which has been uploaded, when you become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com, and the rest of the chapters will continue to come as I narrate them. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Stargate Project was written by Arjun Walia. Locked Away for Falling in Love was written by Gina DeMuro. The Horrifying Case of Elizabeth Fritzel was written by Katie Serena. Lover in the Attic written by Aaron Kelly. And Bigger Than Roswell was written by Michael Havis. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links in the show notes. Join the Weird Darkness Weirdos group for free. Find me on all of my personal social media. Read strange and interesting articles I find online and post to the website. Send me your weirdo fan art and photos, and a whole lot more at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.